Hello and welcome to A Week in the News, a podcast from the Journal and the Chronicle discussing all the best topics that have been in the paper this week. I'm your host Chris Scott, the social media editor for the two papers, and this week I'm joined by Sophie Doughty, our crime reporter, Sophie Biddle from the EDP in Norwich, Rianne Lubin from the Mirror, and Mikey Reynolds from the Daily Record. Hello to all. Hello. Hiya. Okay, so guys, the biggest story in the papers this week was undoubtedly Darren Robson, the homeless uh, man who tragically burned to death. This week, uh, Sophie, you covered this topic for the papers this week. Can you kind of give us a little bit of background about what happened? Yeah, um, I mean, this was probably you know one of the really, sh- uh, a really shocking story that we covered this week. For me personally, um, I was I went out after hearing that a body had been found in Whitley Bay. Um, I actually grew up around North Shields and Whitley Bay, and it's it's quite. I mean, when you work for your local paper and when you do stories that are close to home, they're always they always seem a little bit more real to you. And, and, you know, there's something about seeing forensics and police out on the streets that you knew from when you were young that, you know, sort of really brings it home to you. Um, I was quite lucky to quickly find um, Darren Robson, the man that died's best friend. And what it turned out, well, what appears to have happened is that he lit a fire to keep warm. He's sleeping on the streets, lit a fire to keep warm. And, um, I mean, we're still waiting for the police to conclude investigations for inquests and things, but it looks like that might have been what killed him, is the fact that, you know, he'd, he'd been sleeping in this bin store and he'd, had, you know, it was a cold night, he'd asked his friend for some help, he couldn't help him, and, and he'd lit this fire. Yeah, he actually turned him away for a place to stay that yeah, night, didn't he? Yeah, I think one of the things that is really tragic about this is the only person that Darren had to go to for help was was his friend Chris, who himself is living in supported housing. He'd also been homeless. He also had problems as well. And and, um, and he turned him away, and then when he had nowhere to go, he went to, and, and he seems to have lit this fire. I th- the reaction to the story has actually been so strong, I think because we quite a lot of the time think of homelessness as a, as a well, until about probably 10 years ago, I always thought of it was a problem in, in places like London. You didn't see homeless people sleeping on the streets. Over recent years, you've seen it in the city centre, but, as, you know, it was it was still really shocking to think, you know, behind, you know, these shops in Whitley Bay, there's people sleeping there, you know, they've got nowhere to go, and, and this death has, has been a result of that. Mm, it's, it's a tragic story as well because, we, you know, you wrote a great piece about the last 10 years of his life, um, mm-hmm. and in 2004... He gave an interview to us and, and basically said he turned his life around. He'd, you know, he'd beat this battle with alcohol addiction. Yeah, I think that's what I mean. What makes it really tragic is, you know, a lot of the time people that we have featured before in the paper, you know, they come back up in in different circumstances. And Darren was one of these people. He'd be he'd actually been working as like a mentor and helping other alcoholics, having him having beaten his addiction himself. And um, you know, but it just his life sort of spiralled downwards again and I think it sort of shows that you know, this could be anyone mm-hmm. it, you know, it only takes a few bits of bad luck, I've covered stories before where really successful people, you know with their own businesses, lovely home and family, you know, one thing goes wrong they lose their job or mm-hmm. they lose their wife and they end up you know, living in, in a sort of community that they wouldn't normally live in and then you know, alcohol or drugs comes in and it's like a downward spiral and for Darren it went down so far to the point where his only way to keep warm was like a fire which seems to have killed him. Yeah, what really brought this home to me was in your piece where you quote Darren from 2004 and, and to quote him he says, I'm living proof that you can change, I'll never go back to how I was, it's scary when I look back, I haven't been uh, where I've been and I don't ever want to go back there again and that really brought it home and such a tragic 
yeah, I mean, loss of life. Yeah, and it's absolutely tragic that, and the fact that you know people often say, well, you know, people have to want to change to change their life, and I, you know, and he did. He mm. obviously wanted to change. He wanted mm. to help others. His experience was help help others. I've since been in contact with some with a lady who who he has helped, and we're going to do a story with her. And she says she wouldn't have been here today if it wasn't for him. But you know, there's so you know there could have been so many points in his life where, you know. It could have been stopped from him ending up in this situation. I mean, you know, there's been a lot of debate online since we did the story about what's actually there for for the homeless in 2014. Mm. Is it necessary that anyone should be homeless? And um, you know, it's 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 a big problem. And and I mean, I wouldn't want to be the one to find a solution for it. But you you, you have to think, you know, in Whitley Bay in in 2014, should people be dying because they've lit fires to keep warm? And I think you know. Mm. everyone would agree that that shouldn't be the situation yeah well let's, let's open this up to the group then um mikey we, we ran a story last night that caused a lot of debate online as well um some beggars and we must be clear to distinguish between beggars and the homeless or uh, some beggars in the city center are, are um are earning up to 200 pound a day and so local charities are saying um stop giving money just give food give a hot drink but don't give money because it's going to fuel addiction and stuff like that. You know, is there anything else that the city council can do, or just us as general citizens, that we can do to help these people? I think we are all responsible as a society. We're responsible. If somebody's homeless, no matter what circumstances have caused them to be there, we've got a duty to help them. I think in whatever way we can. And I, when I first read the piece, I found myself I disagreed with the headline before I read the piece because I read don't don't give beggars money. I thought, well, people, most people have a reason for asking for money. But then when I read into it, I did agree with it, because there is, as you say, a distinction between being homeless and being a beggar. I think it's probably a lot more helpful if you give somebody a cup of tea or a sandwich or something, rather than just dropping 10p into their lap, just as a token gesture. So I think that does go, it doesn't go a long way to help. But I think the council could help more, and obviously they're massively restricted by budget, so even if you go above that to national government, there should be more done, I think, to just stop people being homeless because the UK is one of the world's most developed countries and it's astounding still that there's people sleeping on the streets and lighting fires to stay warm or families having to use food banks still in a country like the UK. I think there must be a way that we can build more centres or even convert empty buildings into some sort of sleeping centre for homeless people, something like that, that would just give people a place to go mm-hmm. and stop people like Darren having to light fires in the street and then end up losing their life over it. it it's astounding as well, because b- both Sophie and Mike, you've just said there, um, it's, it's sad in this day and age that people are still homeless. Not only are people still homeless, we ran a story earlier this month that um, homeless charity Shelter have spoken to 2,000 people in the northeast in the last year on the brink of homelessness, which is an increase of 28% since 2012. Now, Rianne, surely them figures speak for themselves that not enough's being done and this has got to change. Yeah, I think there's also a negative stigma towards them as well and people don't really want to understand. Like, people will say they got themselves into that situation, um, they can get themselves out of it, or people have to be able to want to help, like, they want to change themselves. And I don't think there's enough knowledge there on our part. We don't really understand because it's never happened to us. So do you really care? And like, how many times have you walked past somebody and never done anything? I think 
it's really difficult to know what to do because you don't want to fuel any addictions, but we just don't know. I don't mm. think there's anything out there at the moment that... This is, this, is where, this is where I've got a problem with it because you have um, three, three super kind ladies from Wall's End who are appalled by the Darren Robson case and they've gone out this week and they've been handing out sleeping bags, gloves, soup. Sophie, should this be left to just individuals themselves or as, as we've talk, talked about, I think we all agree, it should be more of a council responsibility, shouldn't it? Um, I think perhaps it should be more of a council responsibility in order to tackle the situation as a whole. But as Mikey said, it's it's almost the responsibility of you know the population. I mean, it is outstanding that we can walk past um, people and just ignore the fact that they are cold, they're on the streets, they're hungry. Um, it's amazing that in our culture we can sort of walk past them and it's so integrated um, into our culture that they will be there so I think on some levels on a sort of human level we perhaps should do more to tackle this problem um, by giving out sort of sleeping bags or you know cups of soup um, but at the same time that's not tackling the roots of the problem I think perhaps that's where the council has the majority of the responsibility to to guide these people to know where they can go I, I'm sure that a lot of people they just, when they're out in the streets, they don't know where to go. They don't know where the direction is, you know, to get some help. So perhaps that's where the council can um, help in that way, by contacting them and, and going out onto the streets themselves mm. and just to point them in the right direction. Just on the point of the council, I mean, I don't know Darren's particular situation, but, I mean, I think councils do have a statutory responsibility to house homeless people, but there are lots of people that... that they don't want to be housed, for example, if, you, if you're an alcoholic that doesn't want to stop drinking and you know, you're offered a space in, in a hostel where you can't drink, you might choose to live on, on the streets. And I think what, what's amazing about what these women from War's End did is they did something very practical. I mean, you know, we know the mess this country's in financially and things, and we know that there's, there's a, you know, certain pots of money put into different areas and there are certain people that don't fit into those pockets. You know, I, I've done stories about people that are living on the streets because they can't be housed because they're dangerous, a hostel won't take... You know, if you're a hostel with a load of residents, why should you put a dangerous criminal in there? You know, it's not fair on the other residents. But I think what's great about what the Women in Wars End did was it was something very, very practical. They weren't going to give them money that might feed any addiction. They they just thought, you know, how much does a blanket cost? Everyone's got an old blanket. How much does a cup of tea cost? And what a lot of people commented on the... Darren Robson's story online was the next time I pass someone homeless I'm going to buy them a cup of tea from Greg's which is what 90 pence and you know it's something practical and it's something that you know where you know as individuals we can't solve all the problems in society but at that moment we can buy someone a cup of tea and I think that you know that's commendable and, and these women have gone out and just done what they can so I know it doesn't mm. doesn't solve the root cause of the problem but it it helps mm. the immediate problem and I think in terms of helping people because I've read a lot of stories interviewing homeless people and what they often say is that the thing that hurts them the most is that people just ignore them mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. pretend they're not yeah. there and or like Sophie said, just they, they become part of the environment they're the same as a street lamp or a yeah. bin on the corner, they, they're just expected to be there. Mm. So I think like what the women from Walls End did is a good thing, um, a very good thing because it means that people are beginning to recognise homeless people and actually interact with them and not just look past them, pretend they're not there and just completely ignore them. Uh, it's, a, it's an issue that I'm sure is going to be going 
on and on for a while now and hopefully we'll get some solutions from if not the councils then people working with charities and something that I'm sure Sophie will be looking into over the next few weeks. Um, another issue that was in the paper um, this week was the Northumberland Football Association have cut the ties with the Vice President or the former Vice President John Cummings uh, for saying and I quote a woman's place is in the kitchen not on the football field. Now Talking about problems in society, this is a, still a massive issue and I think I'm going to shut up for a bit now and let the three women in the room take this on because I, I haven't got the same experience of you guys. Can you just talk about any you know, casual sexism that you guys come across in the workplace, or hopefully not the workplace, but um, in you know, out on the street or just in your general lives? I actually personally think sexism's starting to come full circle and we had a brief period where women were seen as equal and some men, not, not all men, <laughs> recently become a little bit threatened by that and um, when they see women getting to certain levels in their career and things that, that they almost want to feminise women a bit more. In, in my early days of journalism in, in the newsroom to get on as a woman you just had to try and be a bit blokey and be as as hard as the men, you didn't want to be, you didn't want to be girly. You wanted to, you know, do the the jobs as risky as the male reporters did. You wanted to be as as harsh on the news desk as you were, and you know, you wanted to be one of the lads. And that's how you how you sort of got accepted. And if and if you were good at your job, and and did that, you know, there was no distinction at all. I think um, in the wider in the wider world, there's a bit. Um, you know things like in football, for example, if a if a female referee or if, you know anyone in in sport is female and doing as well as the men, there will be some men that don't like that and think, oh, we need to batter down a bit. And some women have become more girly. Some women have become more girly off the back of that and sort of played up on being a woman and because they've had to. But that doesn't help the situation either. It's um. A, I don't know what the solution is, but you know there has to be a way to be a woman, be a successful woman in the field that you want to be, even if it's male. And um... absolutely, I think also um, nowadays the problem isn't so black and white. I think the comments are very outdated. I think you know people joke about women being in the kitchen, and um, you know in context, in context, it's meant to be a, a joke, but in actual fact, it shows something a bit a bit deeper running through. Um, the sexism row, but um, I think nowadays it isn't so sort of black and white. You do get pe get women in the the sort of higher positions in the workplace, but I also think that um, generally it's it's just not about men and women. It's about all types of people who aren't being able to get into the the higher levels of the workplace. I mean, um, you know. It's it's not just so simple as sort of men versus women. I mean, you can broaden the the argument out to sort of um, people from you know public schools or private schools or people from comprehensives, not not sort of getting as high as you know as other people. So it's um, it's a debate which I think is kind of old fashioned in a way. But um, in terms of the general sort of sexism, I don't come across it. I have to say that often. Um, in the you know in the streets, I I think a few years back there used to be a lot of wolf whistling and things you know you know from groups of men, and in my experience, it's just been on a kind of Saturday night. 
that you experience it most? I wish I had the yeah, same experience, <laughs> but I don't. Like walking to work pretty much every day along um, Jesmond Road, it's, there's a lot of like lorries and white vans that come down with literally, they all, not all of them, but they beep the guys that like just kind of make lewd gestures. And I don't think that's a new thing. I think that no. all my life, I think that's gone on. It's if it's when it starts getting like offensive and when it it starts getting a bit antagonistic if you don't reply i think that's when it yeah. becomes an issue i don't you know i think men whistling at women is part of life and always has been and i don't find it particularly worrying or offensive it's like you say comments that yeah. would someone come up to you and say that to your face would they come up to you and say that to your face if you're, you know, with someone else. You know. I know, but, sorry, just to jump in there, it's it's amazing that I, I find, as a man, looking in on this issue, that it's what's accepted by women. Like what you said, it's just a part of life mm -hmm. and there's nothing you can do. It shouldn't be, and it's, whether this is education in schools, whether this is just a society going, no, that's it. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be an accepted part of life. I think the problem is there's a fine line between banter and... And what's offensive? But and you're not think that's, banter, that's banter is a word used all the time. It's, mm -hmm. Oh, it's only you a bit of banter. It's just you get away with a lot. No, but I think that's the problem. I think because there's an underlying undertone of control and sexism, what what would have a few years ago been seen as banter and women would take as banter, it it becomes a bit a bit more dangerous and it and it's difficult. You know, because I I'm not offended if someone whistles at me in the street. I am offended if, if they say something lewd and I, you know, it's, I think it's about what you're comfortable with. If you're making someone feel uncomfortable, then it, mm, yeah. then it's wrong. And, and it is surprising how much alcohol becomes a fuel for that mm. kind of behaviour. I mean, it's, it's ludicrous and it's, it's not just verbal either. Mm, yeah, it's, you know, in, in bars in, in town as well, I think, you know, we've discussed this before where is it, it's suddenly okay to grab a woman in a bar because you're in a bar mm. and you're in a crowded space. Mm. Would you grab a woman in Phoenix? No, you wouldn't. Even if it was crowded, you know, Christmas shopping on a Saturday, you would not expect you would not expect to be grabbed whilst doing your Christmas shopping in a crowded space. In a bar, it's suddenly acceptable, and um, you know, it's it's just. Um, but I think you're right. You know, women do sort of put up with it, and it becomes part of a night out. And you don't want to ruin your night out by you know saying something. You don't want to ruin night out by telling a bouncer, and you think you might not be taken seriously, but you know you wouldn't even in the street I expect have, someone to grab I've you. I've got a couple. I've, if it's ever happened to me, I've I've told a bouncer and got the guy kicked out. Good on. Because I, I just don't see why it should be one mm. set of rules outside a club and another set inside. Yeah. It's and if amazing. we started, if we saw a bloke with pants, and start and grab, started grabbing him. I'd, like, I'd love to see what his reaction. Mm. Is. Yeah. Yeah. It's just absolutely objectifying. Mm -hmm. Right. All right, well, so let's move on from that issue because I'm sure we could talk about that for an hour. Um, okay, East Coast Trains. Um, we're recording this on Thursday, by the way, so I have to say it was today announced that Virgin Trains and Stagecoach, uh, Stagecoach have won the right uh, for the East Coast main, mainland route. And so they've promised to invest £140 million over the next eight years and will pay the government £3.3 billion for that contract. This is despite East Coast uh, paying the government 235 million back last year, uh, which is the final year that they'll be in public. It'll be in public hands, which is 12% up on the previous year. A lot of unions have said this 
proves that this move is this privatization is politically motivated, which was I have to say dismissed by uh, the Easington MP uh, Graham Morris. But Mikey, if it's not politically motivated, what's what's behind this privatization? I think it's just a move like. The railways are, for the most part, privatised now. East Coast is pretty much the only public rail franchise. I think it's just to go along with the culture of privatisation is why they've done it, more than for any operating reason or financial reason, because East Coast was a successful franchise and it was a line that runs without any real problems. Obviously, there's delays here and there, but compared to other main lines in the country, it runs surprisingly well. And, as far as I'm aware, turns a profit, which is rare for a rail franchise. So I think it has to be politically motivated because as a government-run train company, East Coast was doing a great job. I think if you poll people, they would say the same thing. I think it's just that there's more money in it for the government. There's $3.3 billion worth it if they give it to a private company. But the other issue with it is... Virgin, especially, I've run the West Coast main line for years and it's not been the most successful of lines. I think there had to be a choice between keeping a company that was public and was successful and giving it to a private company, which, yes, you'd get more money from, but you're risking the service and you're taking it out of public hands, meaning it's less open. I think that's where the problem is and that's why I think it's politically motivated. Mm. It's not in the interest of the public, I don't think, because most people, I don't think, would want it to change. I think the public, as long as they're getting a reliable train service and a reasonably priced one, don't really care who runs it. Um, there was, you know, a few years back, we when the when the railways were in a massive mess. Like when I was at university, like I went to university at Warwick, and I was coming back up here. And that you know you couldn't guarantee you were going to get back up. It was just after when all the speed restrictions had come in, of the back of the train crashes and things. And everyone said then, oh well, this is what happened um, when you um, when you let the private sector take over the railways. But you know, if 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 a private company is going to run it well and it's going to you know, be reliable and affordable, I think the public will, will just take you know a good train service, and which is I think things have got better as well. I think, sorry, I was going to say, uh, Sophie, I think the public are going to see the £140 million investment within in the train line itself. They're going to see that as a good thing, aren't they? Um, I expect so, but um, I would say probably, I understand your point that a, you know, a good, the public just want a good and reliable train service, but it, if it is being privatised, I mean, who's keeping checks on it? Who's keeping checks on this train service? I mean, surely if it was in the hands of the government, um, you know, it would be regulated more. And I think that that, you know, uh, uh, from past experience, I don't find the, the train services so reliable. Um, I've been delayed many times, so I wouldn't say that, I, you know, throwing, chucking money at, um, at the services um, and kind of privatising them, in my view, it, it, doesn't, it hasn't actually helped the situation at all. Um, so, Rianne, you on the train line up and down the country quite a lot. Any opinions on, on the East Coast going private? Um, well, I've, I've only ever used it since I've come up here. I've never been up here for more than a couple of months, but uh, it seemed pretty good. I mean, I used to use Virgin for 
when I travelled between Birmingham and London. And it, on the whole, it was pretty good. And there weren't many, I didn't find there were many delays. Um, so I actually thought East Coast were pretty good when I used them as well. So I suppose it's true. If, you, if you're forced to commute by train and you have to do the same route every day and there's only one operator, you're stuck and you can't really like be a customer and let your money do the talking, which is you know when, when Sophie was saying about, well, if it's not regulated, how we're going to have any say. It's, I think for me, it, it's sort of like if I looked at the prices and looked how reliable it was, if I was to sign, well, should I go away for the weekend by train? Well, no, it costs too much and it's not reliable. I'll take my money elsewhere. But I think it's different if you're commuting and you're, you're stuck yeah. with, with the operator. Yeah. All right, well, we've t- took on three quite heavy subjects there. Um, so let's finish with something light before we move on to our regular feature, uh, Babylon On. Um, it's Black Friday tomorrow, Allegedly. which... Allegedly, as Sophie says. Well, we'll move on to that in a second. But um, from living in America previously, Black Friday was a massive deal. You'd go to Thanksgiving, which is today as we're recording. You'd go have a big meal and then you'd just wait around. You would literally wait around, maybe have a nap after the meal, watch some football, NFL, that is. And you would wait until midnight. You would drive to the mall, you'd drive to the outlet and you'd wait until the shops opened at midnight and you would be shopping until 3, 4 o'clock in the morning getting all their bargains with 70, 80% off a lot of merchandise. There was always a massive queue outside the Sony store, I always remember. But now, I've never seen Black Friday in the UK before, but somehow this year it's become a thing. The first time I heard of it was last year and I'd never heard of it before and I think it's just a one Americanism too far, to be honest. You know, we've, we've got Christmas is coming and I think the big, one of the, things I love the most about Christmas is, you know, Christmas shopping, spreading it over Christmas, going out, seeing Fenwick's window, you know, hearing the Christmas music, um, maybe having a few drinks afterwards. We don't need, you know, these sales and everyone fighting over stuff. Black Friday, you know, it doesn't, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't exist yet. It's a marketing tool. It's trying to get everyone to spend the money as quickly as possible. And, you know, there's sales after Christmas, like, don't be so tight, just enjoy <laughs> shopping. And then there'll be some sales after Christmas if you really want to go to the Boxing Day sales. And if you're a size 0 or a size 22, you might find something. But, you know, I just don't see the point of it, to be honest. Does anyone think this is a good idea, Black Friday? I just don't think people do it this... Uh, I've, I leave mine till, like, two days before. I'm, I don't have time to do it now. I'm not really thinking about it yet. Mm. Um, I was quite alarmed to discover Christmas is... A month away, pretty much exactly. But I, I'd never heard of this before either. Um, nor had I heard of Cyber Monday, which yeah. I think is that the biggest day online yeah. happening. I, I, people can sh- online shop all the time. I don't. Yeah, it's just online shopping's lazy as well at Christmas. <laughs> so you just go out and buy. Yeah, all together, get involved with the crowds. Okay, <laughs> so a week in the news has officially declared Black Friday does not exist in the United <laughs> Kingdom. Okay. So moving on to our regular feature, Babbling On, which is stuff that you're going to be talking about to your friends and family in the pub this weekend. Mikey, what's your babble this week? Um, this weekend, me and my friends will mostly be talking about the NFL. We're all pretty big football, American football fans. And Thanksgiving weekend's always massive in the NFL. It's just before the playoffs. So things are starting to take shape. Teams are getting knocked out. Teams are starting to look like they could be on their way to the Super Bowl. And just... Starting from tonight, there's games on pretty much every night and there's just loads of football to watch, so that'll be my weekend, pretty much sewn up. Nice. Well, we've said Black Friday isn't a thing and I'm going to say American football isn't a thing as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rianne. 
Uh, I'm not sure how interested my friends are going to be when I talk about this, but uh, I'm a bit of a science fiction nerd, so um, I'm going to see War of the Worlds at the Metro Arena uh, on Wednesday, I think. I'm doing a review, and I'm really excited to see oh, that. Awesome, is Tom Cruise there? He's not. Oh, it's a shame. But it's, uh, it's a musical, so that's going to be interesting. Oh. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for that. Or the Wales musical, oh, you'll have to tell us what it's like. I will. Read that in the paper definitely next week. <laughs> yeah. Sophie, do you want to go first? Well, again, my friends will probably be bored when we talk about this, but Take That's new album comes out on Monday. <laughs> and I'm having listened to all the other albums in the car every morning for, on my way to work, I'm bored of them now. I need something, well, you can never get bored of Take That, but I need something new to listen to. Their mm. first album is a three-piece. I'm just very excited. Got tickets to them at the arena in May. So. Will you be buying it on Cyber Monday? I'll be buying it from a shop on Saturday <laughs> Monday. <laughs> okay. All right, Sophie, and finally, what's your babble on this week? Um, mine is a, an American podcast called Serial. Oh, you've um, got mine. Oh, <laughs> okay. Well. I've just been trying to get everybody, including my boyfriend, to um, to listen to it. Um, basically, I heard, heard about it from another friend, so I think it seems to be spreading by word of mouth, but um, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yes, and once is. you watch... Or listen to the first episode, well, you can't I, stop. Shall we, shall we talk about what it actually is? Because we're yeah. promoting another podcast on the podcast, kind of like within the podcast. It's kind of like Inception now. <laughs> um, but basically, it's a murder mystery, isn't it? It's it about um, a guy who, who alleged... Well, he went away. He's gone away for it. He's been in jail for the last 15 years. He committed a murder on his ex-girlfriend, apparently, in 1999. But there's a lot of doubts, and mm. you don't know from one week to the next what the next development's going to be. Right. And it's a, li- it's a live thing. It's running week by week. So even the people who are doing it don't know where this story's going to mm. end. And it's just been announced that there's going to be a second series, and I'm going crazy over it because I love this podcast. <laughs> um, and I hate Thanksgiving because there's no episode this week because of it, because it comes out on oh, a Thursday, yeah. I know. So I'm in serious withdrawal symptoms at the moment. Okay. I'm still on episode three. So I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm on episode nine, I divulged them all. <laughs> yeah, I love them very, very much. Okay, well, I th- I'd just like to thank you all for coming this week. I think that was a really, really good chat. And uh, I'd just like to thank all the listeners for listening. That's a week in the news.